BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, October 18th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org. And if you don't already, you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show. And we're also on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So... Indre, we have something a little different this week. We have a debate, and the debate is over this question that I at least think is pretty big. Is it possible to use facts to convince people that climate change is real, that other scientific findings are real, or not? Do the facts just uh, not work? Uh-oh, Chris, what have you done now? <laughs> well, let me tell you a little bit more about this interview. So here's the story. Recently, a psychologist, and we've talked about his work before at the University of Bristol named Stephen Lewandowski, He's drawn attention to a new way of talking to people about global warming, and he's provided evidence that it actually seems to work. And here's a clip of him describing his research. We told people that 97 out of 100 climate scientists agree on the basic premise that the globe is warming due to human greenhouse gas emissions. And what we found was that that boosted uh, people's acceptance of the uh, scientific uh, facts relating to climate change um, by a significant amount. And it did so in particular for people of a free market worldview or ideology. And um, so we found that people were responsive to that message. Okay, but so here's the thing. Lewandowski says that, but it seems to contradict other research suggesting that ideology is sort of has this preeminent role and it washes over and overwhelms people res- people's responsiveness to the facts. So when I interviewed Lewandowski, I had also on another researcher who disagrees with him, Dan Kahan at Yale. He's another top person in this field of science of science communication, and he disagreed. So let's hear what he had to say. I think Steve got the result that he did in, the, in his study, and it's very important, and people should try to replicate it. Um, but my, my uh, thought is that when people get that kind of message in the world, um, there are all kinds of other uh, uh, influences that are filtering ex- essentially the, the credibility of that message. Um, if that would work, so Stephen, I, I would have you... expected it to work by now. So that's Kahan. And I want to emphasize 
this is no mere academic debate. What's at stake here is nothing less than whether communication works the way scientists wish that it would, which is you tell people things and then they change, or whether it doesn't work that way at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, we really need to get to the bottom of this. And uh, I have to say, you know, I've been more in the Kahan camp in the past where I've thought it's really hard to change people's minds, no matter how much data you throw at them. But before we get there, I do want to talk about some other stuff that's in the news this week. Um, and in particular, something that's close to my Canadian heart. And that is the mystery of the missing moose. Or is it mooses? <laughs> I mean, mo- you're mo- Canadian, you I, must I, know. Pretty sure it's moose. Um, But anyway, so there are several headlines that have hit the papers this week uh, suggesting that scientists are noticing a dramatic decrease in the moose population in the U.S., Um, especially in Minnesota. There are fewer animals being located, but also there are animals that are that are found dying uh, from a tick infestation and the resulting starvation. And what's interesting and, you know, perhaps sad and very telling is it seems that the causes might be related to global warming. Mm-hmm. I read the news on this, and it was stunning. These population declines are really dramatic. In, in Minnesota, they said the decline was from 4,000 moose individuals to less than 100. Uh, so I, I was stunned. Um, I was in Alaska this summer and saw lots of moose just driving along the road. So I, I don't know if they're having the same problem there. I don't know if you know. Well, certainly in Canada, uh, which is where I I did some other research and in the Yukon and Northwest Territories, which is at the same, you know, just as far north as Alaska, they are they're finding that the population of moose is stable. So um, in the Yukon, I believe it's around 70,000 animals and in the Northwest Territories is 50,000 animals. I might have gotten that backwards, but the numbers are up there. Uh, But the numbers in Ontario and Quebec are pretty stable as well. And but, you know, they they are seeing more ticks now. um, uh, coming into the Yukon in particular. So the question is, is it just a matter of time that, you know, the warming is affecting Minnesota because it's further south and eventually we'll have the same problem up in the Yukon and Northwest Territories. Uh, but, it, you know, it's it's also a question, I think, of population size. I mean, in the Minnesota, you already have a pretty small population, 4,000 to start out with, um, 8,000 in, in another moose population, whereas up in Northern Canada and in Alaska, you have numbers in the tens of thousands. So, you know, there's, there's, with a healthier population like that, it's easier, you know, it takes a bigger effect um, for, for the population to decrease markedly. Well, if this is a climate thing, I just, I got to say the moose might be the new polar bear because, I mean, wow, in terms of a charismatic megafauna being hurt by humans, it's hard to get more charismatic than the moose, more dramatic. Yeah, you know, it's really sad. Moose moose are such interesting creatures and they're wonderful to see. They're also pretty solitary. They don't, you know, go around in herds, so sometimes it's hard to find them. But yeah, it's a sad sad idea to think that even the moose population is threatened by global warming. They were everywhere in Alaska, though. They're ginormous. I don't know if yeah. everybody knows that. I mean, like Yeah, they're not super it, friendly. People make I don't the mistake come up to their shoulder. <laughs> of of trying to approach moose, and that's not always a good idea. Well, let's, I mean, let's, let's follow this one. It was certainly shocking headline. So I had my, my little outrage moment of the week, okay, which is when I learned that Oprah had told an atheist that she was not an atheist, right? And I want to play a clip so we know what we're talking about here. This is Oprah talking to Diana Nyad, who is this amazing woman who 
just swam. She's at, at the age 64. She swam 110 miles from Cuba to Key West without a shark cage. You probably heard about it on the news. So she goes on Oprah and this happens. I can stand at the, at, at the beach's edge with the most devout Christian, Jew, Buddhist, go on down the line and weep with the beauty of this universe and be moved by all of humanity. All the billions of people who have lived before us who have loved and hurt yeah. and suffered. So to me, my definition of God is humanity and is the love of humanity. And as we return to, you well, know... Well, I don't call you an atheist then. I think if you believe in the awe okay. and the wonder and okay. in the mystery... Okay. Uh, that that is what God is. Okay. That is what God is. Well, God I guess, is not you know, the bearded guy in the sky. Okay, so Indre, I've, I first of all, I find this breathtakingly ignorant on Oprah's part. I mean, that you can't, to, to think that an atheist can't have these emotions. Um, but I also found it kind of out of touch. I mean, I thought Oprah was supposed to have her pulse on things. But to me, Nyad is articulating a view that's extremely common. It's the I'm spiritual but not religious view. And if you look at millennials, there's been all this polling about this. Like, this is an overwhelming uh, disposition among them. So, I mean, I don't even know where Oprah is getting it from. You know, I think it really underscores the fact that there's a real stigma associated with being labeled an atheist. Um, just like in the past, there's been a stigma with being in another minority group. Uh, there, There is this misperception out there that atheists are, you know, evil, that they're unfeeling, that they're cold, that they're sterile. And what I think is really interesting is that some of those same characteristics have often been used to describe scientists. So, mm -hmm. for example, you know, one of my favorite quotes from um, Richard Feynman, the physicist, uh, is that when he was talking to an artist and an artist says to him, you know, I really pity you because you can't just appreciate the beauty of a flower. You have to reduce it until it's something that is just, you know, dull and uninteresting. And Feynman disagrees. He says, look, I can appreciate the beauty of the flower just like you can, maybe not as deeply. I'm not an artist, but I can also then go into the flower and see the beauty in the organization of the cells and the way that they replicate and how, you know, the flower has evolved in this ecosystem and it, and it affects its color, affects the mating behavior of insects and so on and so on and so on. And, you know, he ends the, the quote by saying, look, I don't understand how science subtracts. It just adds. And, you know, I think the same is true of, of atheists and their approach to the world and awe and wonder. And, and if that's what you call spirituality, fine. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a stereotype to think mm -hmm. that they can't be spiritual. It's an utter stereotype. And, you know, you, you play the Feynman card. And if you hadn't, I would have played a Darwin card or an Einstein <laughs> card or a Sagan card. I mean, like there's every quote of all of our scientific pantheon of heroes. Everybody's got one of these, you know, awe and wonder and spirituality moments that they have. And I, so rather than like adduce all of those examples of why Oprah is wrong, um, I, I just wanted to actually give us a little data. So there's this social scientist at Rice Elaine Howard Eklund, and she surveyed scientists about their beliefs. She does science and religion research. And the big thing was not, the big finding was not the religion, although there was more religion in science than people would have thought, but it was spirituality was everywhere in science. 50% of um, these scientists she surveyed, 1,700 scientists at 21 top universities, called themselves spiritual. And um, I, I, I think that that's, that's actually an incredibly prevalent uh, thing in science. So again, Oprah out of touch. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we shouldn't we should be careful not to say all scientists are atheists and make yeah. that fallacy. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's that's the idea. I also think, you know, Oprah herself has has struggled pretty publicly with with her own beliefs and people attacking her for her own view of God. So it is does surprise me that she's not more open to accepting the views of others in this case and having to, you know, reformulate them into a view in which she can agree with. Mm hmm. So one last question for you on this before we then go to the show. I, I, there's this research. I just want your take. Is spirituality in our brains? You must know about this, right? In other words, <laughs> that there's, a, there's a biological grounding to the, quote, spiritual experience so everybody can have it. If you're religious, if you're not religious, it's just sort of maybe part of the makeup of people. Chris, everything is in our brains. <laughs> so What's yeah, <laughs> everything is in our brains. <laughs> so right. you know, that's yeah. I, I don't know what, what that tells us so much about spirituality. <laughs> um, one of the things I think is really interesting is that this finding that religiosity is in somewhat genetic. Uh, yeah. So it's not what you believe, oh, but it's the fervor. Yeah, the fervor with which you believe it. So you can have twins who are, you know, have very different belief systems. One could could believe in Islam, the other one could believe in Christianity, but the extent to which they believe is is seems to be genetically related. It's interesting. Wow. We so table that. We need a whole show on that. It's been in the <laughs> back of my mind for a while. So with that, let's get on uh to our show today debating uh, one of what may be the biggest question in the science of science communication, which is what we know about what works and what it means and whether facts are actually good devices to sway people. So let's go to my interview with Dan Kahan of Yale University and Stephen Lewandowski from the University of Bristol. Dan Kahan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. And Stephen Lewandowski, welcome also to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Great to be here. Both of you have done what I think is very important research, and I'm kind of a junkie. I read it all. I've reported on both of uh, your research in the past. And, you, you know, you're both helping us understand this problem of science communication with respect not only to climate, but also the implications are much broader. They extend to the evolution issue, the vaccine issue, the fracking issue, and on and on. But I wanted to have you on because based on my reading of the research, an issue's come up where there might be some disagreement. And this is an issue that's kind of an emotional matter for people in science because it kind of goes to the heart of what they do and basically whether they can hope to live in a reasonable world or not, if I can just be not too melodramatic. Uh, the issue here is, do facts work when you're communicating about climate change and other contested issues, which is what scientists want to do, or do they not? Or maybe to what extent do they work? And so to to grasp this issue, I think we should start off talking to Dan a little bit um, about what the case is for why facts might not work. And this is the research on ideology, which seems to be this major thing that interferes with how people accept science. And if they're smart, sometimes it might interfere even worse. So Dan, maybe you can start giving us the background on why facts sometimes get beaten by ideology. Okay. Um, although I do want to start by saying that I think that um, facts... Uh, not only do work, but they're the only thing that in the end is going to work. Um, and the question is then uh, just what kind of conditions do you need um, in order for people reliably to be able to identify what the facts um, are? Um, and if you think about it, uh, people have to um, recognize as known by science um, much more than they could um, ever uh, possibly 
um, understand at a detailed level um, or verify for themselves, um, but they have lots of different kinds of cues and processes that normally um, reliably lead them um, to the best available evidence. Um, but sometimes um, those kinds of cues and processes, essentially the science uh, communication environment, um, get disrupted. Um, and when that happens, um, then people are going to be confused um, and they're going to use their reason in ways uh, that won't reliably um, lead them to what the right facts are, but might lead them uh, more reliably to uh, positions that are held within their group. Um, that's the kind of thing that we're seeing on uh, debates like climate change or nuclear power or the HPV vaccine. Um, positions on those issues um, have essentially become symbols um, of people's membership in and loyalty to groups. Um, and the stake that people have um, in, their, in their standing in the group um, is, is a very strong one. Um, and in those conditions, uh, people tend to use their reason uh, to extract from information um, the parts of it that help them uh, to, to reinforce the beliefs that are, are held within their group. Um, those conditions are ones you want to you change um, because you want facts to matter. Um, but facts by themselves can't necessarily change those conditions. Got it. Let me just ask Stephen, um, do you broadly agree with that? I mean, you've done a lot of research showing, um, Dan said groups, but you could also say, I mean, some of the groups are marked by your political or ideological affiliations. You agree that that is clearly getting in the way a lot of the time? Oh, absolutely. There is no question. In particular, when it comes to climate change, the um, people's worldview or ideology, whatever you want to call that, is is just an overriding variable. Um, whereby people who are strongly endorsing the free market um, are very unlikely to accept the findings from climate science. So, yes, I totally agree with that. Okay. Well, now I want to ask you... Can I take you that one of the facts that... Another thing I think, not to ruin the show, but um, another thing I think that uh, even I agree about is that like, a fact, um, essentially, that's of, of critical importance to people... Um, it is what the um, people who have expertise in a particular field believe. Um, I, I mean, Steve has done studies like this, and I have too, um, that show uh, that on these issues where you have this kind of public conflict on decision-relevant science, it's not one group saying, um, we trust the scientists, and the other saying, screw the scientists. Those on both sides um, tend to believe that the scientists um, hold the position that's dominant within their group. Um, so that's part of what it is that they're polarized about. Um, and, and that doesn't usually happen. Mm -hmm. Well, so let me now just go on to some of Stephen's new research that, you know, might seem to conflict with the idea that ideology is sort of reigning supreme. Um, and Stephen, I'll ask you to describe this research where you're actually giving people something that sounds to me like a fact, or it sounds to me like uh, something that I would expect conservatives to contest. You're telling them, you can explain, you're telling them that there's a scientific consensus on climate change and you're getting uh, a response. Yes, we do. This was a study where we did exactly that. We told people that 97 out of 100 climate scientists agree on the basic premise that the globe is warming due to human greenhouse gas emissions. And what we found was that that boosted uh, people's acceptance of the uh, scientific uh, facts relating to climate change um, by a significant amount. And it did so in particular for 
for people of a free market worldview or ideology. And um, so we found that people were responsive to that message. And it is really not surprising if you consider the background literature on this. It's long been known that people adjust their attitudes and behaviors based on what they think the majority of people do. Uh, There's a very, you know, people are social animals and they're responsive to social cues. And if it is socially unacceptable to you know, consume excessive amounts of alcohol, then people won't do that. Um, And in a sense, this is what we found, that people are sensitive to the overwhelming scientific consensus on climate change. So it's interesting. So now it looks like I have conflicting messages if I want to communicate. I mean, what do I make of the fact that uh, there's some 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 factual statements do seem to move people, but we know that ideology is also big. and And I'll get Stephen to answer that, and then I'll ask Dan uh, to respond to this this new research and this new angle. Yeah, well, I think both. There there are two components. Uh, what we found in the same study I just described is also that ideology or worldview is an overriding variable. The two things aren't exactly in conflict. Um, we find that ideology is predisposing people towards rejection of the scientific evidence in this instance. And we also find on top of that, that that predisposition is reduced if we tell people about the scientific consensus. So I think there are two variables going on um, and the findings that Dan has been reporting and and my own, I think, complement each other rather than being in conflict. Dan, what's your what's your take? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think another a basic thing um, that Steve and I would ag- agree on, and that's more important than any kind of disagreement we may have about particular studies, um, is that the way to try to, to sort these things out is by doing um, empirical testing um, and by trying to make um, the best assessments you can based on all the evidence that's available. And I certainly see the kinds of studies that Steve has been doing as as valid um, and as something that has to be taken into account and that we should adjust our views um, on about how people form their, their positions on, on science. Um, my own view, though, is that uh, the, the uh, power of communicating scientific consensus um, has been tested pretty much in the world. Um, the idea that uh, there's 97% consensus or more was actually a dominant theme of uh, the climate communication um, that uh, Al Gore um, and his group engaged in um, for, for many, many years. Um, and the claim there's 97% right. consensus is, is widespread. The studies that show that, too, appear on a regular basis, um, and they don't seem to, to make any difference in the proportion of people um, that actually believe that uh, the climate change is caused by humans. And I think the answer, the reason is the one that Steve gave. It's a kind of social influence. Um, the social influence they're responding to is um, what do people like me believe? Um, and people like them tend not to believe that that's what most scientists think. Now, you can tell them that that's what most scientists think, um, but they're used to being told things that um, they know people in their group don't believe. Um, I, I think Steve got the result that he did in, the, in his study, and it's very important, and people should try to replicate it. 
Um, but my, my uh, thought is that when people get that kind of message in the world, um, there are all kinds of other uh, uh, influences that are filtering ex essentially the, the credibility of that message. Um, if that would work, so Stephen, I, I would you... have expected it to work by now. Yeah, what do you think of that? So in other words, it might work in the lab once you get out into the messy world where Fox News is telling people not to believe this stuff it doesn't, doesn't work anymore. Well, I think my answer is that, first of all, our studies were done, some of them outside the lab, using representative samples, uh, you know, with data collected by a professional survey firm. So we have gone out of the lab. Now, I, I agree with Dan partially in that, um, yes, it would be nice um, if everybody in the, in the real world knew that the consensus among climate scientists was as high as it is. But our own data from the same experiments, they show that in reality, um, people, the public, thinks that the agreement is far less than 97%. So there is a consensus gap uh, such that what people tend to believe is that only about 60, 65% of scientists agree on this issue, when in reality, the agreement is far, far greater than that. So uh, to say that, well, Al Gore has tried this and it doesn't work, well, what, what hasn't worked is to communicate the extent of the consensus. But we know from my studies, and they have been replicated, uh, including by others, we know from my studies that if you can only tell people about the consensus, that it does make a huge difference to their belief. So there, there, there are two issues going on here, and I think the, the really – important question to ask is why is there this misperception in the public uh, about the, you know, that, that they don't recognize how strong the agreement is. And, and I mean, you've already mentioned Fox News, but I think more generally, we have a problem with the way the media and various other interest groups have been portraying climate science uh, in society. And that is the real problem we have to address. So what if, you, and I'll ask Dan first, but I'll ask you both. I mean, at this point, if you're operationalizing any of this, you want to actually make a difference and communicate. Uh, what does it mean? What does this research mean for what someone should go out and, and try to do? Well, actually, I mean, in the same, the same spirit that I started the last answer, um, I think people should try lots of things, um, and uh, there are more plausible uh, strategies out there than will actually work, um, and people should try them. Um, and even even if, uh, if 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 my if if I don't think that's the most plausible strategy, I'm going to be disappointed um, if nobody's trying it because the the likelihood um, that it's right um, is is sufficiently high and the benefit of it would be sufficiently great that it would be stupid um, to try only something else. Um, but what I would, my, my view is that um, what's preventing people from getting the message um, isn't that they haven't heard it, um, but that they exist in an, a social environment um, where they don't credit that information, that that social environment is different from the ones that, um, when I say lab, I don't mean like in, inside of a laboratory but inside of a, of a study um, where somebody is able to give them this kind of message, what I would communicate to them um, is that the consensus um, is people like you 
um, are orienting themselves with respect to this science in a way um, that shows that it's valid. Um, 97% of people like you, um, and actually that's true. Um, you just have to find the places where people are engaging that kind of climate science um, in that constructive way. Um, so if you go to places like Florida and Arizona, um, not a good idea to run for office saying that you, you care about climate change, but all over the state, um, they're engaged in stakeholder proceedings um, that are informed by climate science, including what's in the IPCC, um, that are aimed at uh, trying to uh, contain adverse climate impacts um, on those communities. And you can just show people, people like them, um, engaging that information in a positive way. At that point, um, they're very, very much open to the usual cues um, that help people to converge on what the best evidence is. But this sounds to me, and, and I'll, I'll kick the question back to Steve in a second, this sounds to me like framing, in other words, setting up the information so that it resonates with the audience. But what I take Stephen's research to be suggesting is that this unframed message about consensus might still get through. So I guess I'll ask you now, Stephen, what you would say is the practical strategy for communicating. Uh, well, I agree with Dan in many ways. I think there are multiple messages that uh, can do the job with, you know, different segments of, of the audience. Um, some messages work better than others for different folks. Uh, that's, you know, I don't have any problem with that. I think that is absolutely profoundly true. Um, from my point of view, I think um, underscoring the consensus is a an arguably successful strategy for most people um as far as uh we know from the data i also think reframing is is a very important thing i mean uh some of dan's work uh shows that if you remind people that one solution to climate change is, you know, business opportunities for new and upcoming technologies, then they think about mitigation very differently from when you tell them that we have to cut emissions. Um, so I think there are ways in which the message can be presented that maximizes our chances of, of it getting through in, in, in a lot of different, different ways. Are we better at this now? I mean, you guys are both working in a field that's called the science of science communication, and there have been conferences on it. Um, do you, is there real progress in terms of messaging because of uh, a lot of research that's gone on in the last five or 10 years? Is it really being implemented? Dan, I'll ask you first. Well, um, I think that there, there's definitely progress in understanding what um, the mechanisms of consequence are um, when you have uh, public conflicts over decision-relevant science. Um, there are lots of different kinds of psychological and social influences that um, affect how people process information about risk, um, and, and not all of them are going to be the ones that matter um, in this kind of setting. Um, and I think that work mainly in the lab has done a good job of identifying what the mechanisms of consequence are, um, and also in suggesting things um, that engage those mechanisms in a, in a constructive way. Um, but the only way for there really to be progress is to have then um, people doing things in real world communication contexts that are informed um, by that evidence. Um, because anything that Steve and I might show in a study 
Um, and for me, a lab study is just any kind of a, a study you do with, with subjects who you recruit to participate in a survey or an experiment. Um, anything we're able to do there um, is, is a model. Um, you can go into the real world and try to make that kind of thing happen. Um, but the way in which you can make it happen in the world um, isn't going to be something you can just guess or that'll be obvious. You're going to have to have hypotheses and experiments. Um, I think we'll make a lot of progress um, if people take results from experiments that show things working um, and then see what they can do in the world to reproduce that. And then we can use that information too um, and try to build on it and see what we're learning from it. Stephen, what about you? What do you think is the state of the art? Is the state of the art getting more artful because of uh, the research? I think it is. I think we've learned a lot uh, about the uh, basic principles and what it is that facilitates acceptance of the science and what the barriers are to to acceptance of it. Um, but let me let me add something to to what Dan has said, and that is. Um, Part of the problem we've got, and there's research that, that points to that, part of the problem we have is just a lack of uh, political leadership on this, on this issue. And if you're tracking the poll results over the last six or seven years and, and you try to explain why there is arguably a declining concern amongst the public with climate change, then you know the the reason for that seems to be lack of political leadership the politicians have basically put it bluntly have abandoned the science they've abandoned uh, the problem and it's only against the background of this lack of leadership that contrarian voices have got a, uh, a foothold as much as they have and and there's work by by Broly at all that shows this so i think all the knowledge we have gathered in the lab over the last five or 10 years is ready to be used and it is ready to make a difference. But what we need is political leadership on this issue to, to make use of that knowledge that we have. It, let me just, let's go to a real world example on this, putting it to use. You know, we just had a gigantic uh, rollout of climate science information by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, and I, I would say that if they were trying to get a message out, it was a message of scientific consensus. Uh, I, what the actual message that was heard by people was, is I would suggest maybe a very different thing. But, you know, did they use what you guys know or did they not? Is it, was this successful or was it not? Uh, what do you think? Well, actually, I think that the I mean, science communication is not just one thing. Um, and I think that. Uh, uh, the communication of the content of the science by the IPCC um, is outstanding, um, that the report um, is very well crafted, um, and that people who are going to make practical decisions um, based on the science are going to get it um, and know what its significance is. And, and that's no mean accomplishment. Um, so I think they did a great job of communication. The problem is thinking that that kind of science communication is the same thing that uh, is involved in generating a kind of public receptivity um, to the best available evidence. Um, most people are never going to read the IPCC report. In fact, most people are never even going to read something written about the IPCC report or characterizing it in any kind of way. Um, they're getting all kinds of cues from people 
um, about how to orient themselves towards climate science that are filtered through all kinds of intermediaries. Um, that's the kind of communication um, that needs the most work. We need to be creating a, a science communication environment um, where people recognize that they should orient themselves in, the, in uh, the way that is receptive to the best available evidence. But it's a huge mistake to think that that's the, the job of the scientists who write the IPCC report. This is a kind of failure of leadership. Um, there's got to be a science communication function um, and, and a, a science communication uh, a layer um, that's focused on generating the conditions in which people are going to know that it's, it's normal and uh, appropriate to treat what otherwise they would see as the signal of scientific consensus at face value. Stephen, you want to add on the actual IPCC rollout anything? Uh, well, again, I think the scientists did a splendid job. There's no question. And I also agree with Dan that it's not their job to, um, you know, communicate this to the public directly. Um, but I also think the rollout of the IPCC was a prime example of, of how um, people who reject the scientific consensus are very successful at... Um, you know, creating a media environment that is not conducive to people accepting the science. Let's put it that way, putting it mildly. Um, in the lead up to the release of the IPCC, we had all sorts of leaks of preliminary copies of the report. We had uh, reporting by tabloids in the UK that was just completely uh, uh, mistaken, um, which was picked up around the world. There was a lot Lot of reporting ahead of time that that sought to frame the release of the IPCC report in a in a manner that uh, would would you know let people dismiss the implications of the findings, and so again that was you know a a basically a political problem. There were voices out there who very cunningly sought to undercut the science, and they were able to do that without too much opposition from uh, political leaders or, for that matter, from uh, other media. So the problem, unfortunately, is that whatever we do in the lab, um, in reality, we're faced with a political situation and scientists aren't the ones who can change that. So let me now, we've talked a lot about climate change. I mean, what's the generalizability of what we're finding here? I mean, ideology is not only pertinent on climate. It is absolutely pertinent on the rejection of evolution. It might be a slightly different ideology, but it's an ideology. Vaccinations, uh, fracking. Fracking is probably very similar to climate uh, in a lot of ways. So uh, are the same lessons applying on all of these hot-button issues? Well, I mean, one thing I hope uh, that we've learned um, from the experience of climate change um, is that uh, it's really just a mistake to kind of assume um, that valid science will communicate itself. Um, most of the, the issues um, that are uh, relevant to people's lives that are informed by science don't generate um, the kind of conflict that we see over climate change you know, much less the perverse effect of people who seem to be even more adept at critical reasoning becoming even more polarized. Um, but that's because most of those issues don't have in their career um, some set of influences 
um, that invest them with uh, this kind of significance as the, the symbols of group identity. Um, and we should be what we should be looking at emerging technologies um, and trying to, to prevent that sort of thing from happening when we can. Um, vaccines are a really good example. Um, in fact, in the United States, there's not um, anything close to the public controversy about vaccination um, that there is on something like climate change. Um, but there certainly is reason why you could worry um, about something like that happening um, and sort of understanding what those dynamics are um, and having ways in which you can respond to those to try to, to minimize the likelihood that they'll generate this kind of, of pathological state. Um, that's a really important thing. Getting out ahead of these things, I think, is, is critical because you know, preventive medicine is always going to be better than the, the kind of chemotherapy um, that we're, we're kind of puzzling over here with climate change. Stephen, what about you? I mean, I'm just thinking if you apply the consensus message to evolution, it's going to be 99.99% of scientists, but I bet you it's still not going to be accepted. I and mean, what do you think about these uh, other issues and the, the same rule applies? Well, I think let me let me touch on the evolution issue. I think you're absolutely right that the consensus message is going to fail with some people, but that doesn't mean that it wouldn't also be effective overall. And I think we have to tease apart two things here. We have to look at the effectiveness overall of a message across, you know, broad segments of the population. On the one hand, versus the isolated effect of that message on subsets of the population on the other. So the two can go together. You know, you can tell people about the consensus in evolution. Overall, I'm sure that would make a slight difference, but not for everybody. And I agree with Dan that, that of course, we have to try and avoid this ideological uh, polarization wherever possible. And I just published a study last week or so where I looked at a at a number of different issues um, to see, you know, whether ideology might go the other way. Might it be the case that there is a, a liberal war on science, quote unquote, that some people have suggested? So I looked at ideology again and uh, political leanings and the effect of those variables on the acceptance of vaccinations and genetically modified foods, GM foods. And what I found is somewhat to my surprise that there was no effect of worldview or ideology on the acceptance of uh, GM foods. That was on, a, uh, on an American sample. So there doesn't appear to be any polarization on that issue yet. Uh, and with vaccinations, what I found is that there was a very subtle interplay of uh, two variables that basically more or less canceled each other out. So it was a bit more nuanced than I can explain it now uh, on the air. But basically, there was relatively little influence of worldview on uh, vaccination. So the point is, it's not necessarily the case that controversial scientific issues have to become polarized by party lines. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I thought that was a very interesting um, study that Steve did, because there really isn't enough um, good empirically informed understanding of what public perceptions of vaccine risks are. Um, and he did manage to find um, some influences that explain variants. Um, but if you look at what the variants, uh, what variants was being explained, 
um, there was overwhelmingly positive views. Am I right, Steve, about vaccines in the um, in the sample? Um, so yes, there yes. were some people who had less positive views. But yeah. you're explaining variants within a range, you know, of people between who really love vaccines and who just really <laughs> like it a lot. Um, and and of course, knowing about the variants is important. Um, but the if those same well different groups, as he says, right? But but the kinds of the kind of thing we're seeing about climate change is just a whole whole different uh, phenomenon. So it's bigger. Let me let me translate this. What you're saying is that on, I mean, on climate you have a polarized public. On vaccines, you're saying that the the broad majority of the public feels good about them, and you're talking about a small subset of people that would be in, in vaccine denial. Are you guys both agree about that? Is that right? Yeah, certainly. Overall, the the yes, the distribution is is located in a very different place. Yes, that's can I connect true. that too to the evolution point? And because, mm-hmm. um, and I'm 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 curious. I bet Steve will agree with this. Um, but uh, if you actually just the question, do you believe in evolution? Um, it's not actually measuring anything to do with people's understanding of science. Um, there's no correlation between whether you say you believe in evolution and you don't, um, on the one hand, and whether you actually understand mechanisms like natural selection, uh, random mutation, or genetic variance, the, the core of the modern synthesis. Um, people who say they believe those things aren't very, who believe evolution aren't very likely to understand those things. They accept something they don't understand, which is just fine, um, because you have to do that. Um, but plenty of people um, who say they don't believe evolution do understand those things um, and can be taught those things. And people who have very high scores on science literacy, otherwise, they'll get about 50% on this question, do you believe in evolution? That's because they're answering a certain question, who are you, right? That's how they understand that question. And if the issue is, well, should we, do we wish that more people would say, I believe in evolution, um, even if they understand it? I mean, that's an interesting question, I suppose. But now let's say we go to those people um, and, and they do have an identity stake um, in taking this position, I'm, I don't believe in evolution. And we say to them, you know, um, it's also part of your identity to be skeptical about vaccines. Um, and by the way, this war on science that you're having, the same thing, the, the, the same virus that, that's causing you to, um, to deny evolution, it, that's the one that's causing you to be against climate change. And now it's mutating into something on vaccines. At that point, you're starting to to fill uh, the kind of uh, environment in which people are responding to cues about who believes what in their community with information. That's social influence information. People like you have this kind of position. Um, It's actually false. Um, But if, if we understand the mechanisms better, that people are very responsive to these social influences, the last thing you'd want to do is have anybody um, overstate the degree to which um, there's group conflict about vaccines. Yeah, but but Dan, I'll let Stephen weigh in, but I mean, it's so impossible to control the information environment that they're getting where people are, you know, in effect putting spin on every bit of information all the time and polarizing people. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine how you turn down the knobs. Steve, Steve was yeah, saying that quick, we yeah. should be expecting and exhorting um, political, the political leaders um, to do things on climate change, and I agree with them. Um, the same, the people I'm talking about here who present these kinds of claims about the the vaccines 
um, being connected to evolution and, and climate change, those are actually people who think that they're doing that, that what they're saying is true and that the message that they're 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 promoting is a good one. Um, they're the same people who are trying to raise people's awareness of climate change. I don't blame them. I think the problem is they don't have enough information um, about what these kinds of issues are and what they mean. And that if they look at Steve's study, um, that will help them to see that those aren't connected issues. Um, yeah, and if they I look at other studies, they'll see why, that, why that's a mistake to use that kind of rhetoric. Okay, Steve? Yeah, well, I, I agree with Dan. I think, you know, the, the issues aren't necessarily uh, connected. But I want to follow up on one other thing that Dan mentioned, which I think is, is um, the fact that a position on, let's say, climate change has become almost like a tribal totem. You know, it's I am conservative, therefore I cannot believe in climate change. There appears to be this sort of self-identification almost that that you know, consists of rejecting the scientific evidence. And I think that is true in a lot of other scientific issues, evolution, possibly vaccination, uh, that, that people's identity is built around that attitude more and more. And again, I think to break that, what you need is spokespersons from within that community who are, who are saying, well, hang on, I am conservative too, and I believe that climate change is a real threat. Uh, for example, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's been very explicit on this issue and is a, you know, a great advocate and uh, has has done, you know, great work on that. And, and I think that that is an important goal: is to just break this unnecessary linkage between one's own political identity and, and, and acceptance of scientific issues. Um, so once again, for better or worse, I think it boils down ultimately to politics. Well, let me just wrap up then. I mean, we could do By a lot the way, more. I couldn't, I, agree, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, that's okay, cool. exactly what I, I think is the, the, the issue. Well, I think it's a good note to sort of tie this up and put a bow on it then. I'll just ask you, Dan, I'll go first, and then we'll give Stephen the last word. We gave Dan the first. So uh, based on all this, I'll ask each of you guys, what is one evidence-based thing that you would like to see happen in the world that would actually make the scientific communication problem a little bit less bad? Well, I think that um, the evidence-based practice um, that would be extremely useful um, would be to have uh, some kind of a process um, in the, uh, the, the, uh, the governmental uh, regulatory process that generates um, a policy, uh, a science-informed policy um, that's equivalent to what we do now for cost-benefit analysis. Every single regulation um, that is promulgated by any federal agency gets centrally reviewed in the Office of Management and Budget for the cost-benefit analysis. All of these regulations that have any kind of impact on uh, the prospects for uh, science-informed policymaking should have a science communication impact assessment attached to them. Um, there should be some attempt to identify um, what kinds of uh, of influences could generate the kinds of connections between identities and positions um, that Steve was mentioning, and, and to try to head those off, um, because a lot of times those happen 
um, by accident and misadventure. Um, and I do think that we could we can actually do something uh, to try to control that. Well, I think what we really need is for conservative leaders to remember that the earth isn't flat and to, you know, resume a little bit of rational thought and to recognize that when 97 out of 100 climate scientists agree on a problem that, you know, they're not making – the scientists aren't making this up. This isn't a hoax. This is a real risk, and it's a risk to all of us, including conservatives, and I think, you know, once we have – politicians remembering this and uh, speaking out like Arnold Schwarzenegger, then I think uh, our job is going to be much easier. Okay. Well, on that note, I want to thank both of you for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Great. Great to talk to you. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Wow, Chris, that was a really great conversation. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think obviously, I think the science here in both cases is quite solid. Uh, but I do agree with Dan that they might be looking at slightly different things, right? In the sense that you ask someone straight away what their opinion is, that doesn't mean that that opinion is going to persist over the course of the next, you know, few weeks or months. So, you know, one of the things that occurred to me listening to uh, Stephen's, Stephen's descriptions is that, you know, maybe it's easy for people to have that, you know, opinion changed right away. But then memory is going to come in when they have to argue with somebody else later down the road or, or remember why it is that they believe in a particular argument. And our memory is so biased um, by our belief system. So it's possible that later on, you know, what they actually remember are, is misinformation based on their belief system. Right. And I think that's the problem of underlying all these experiments is you can only do so much. You can use a variety of different methodologies, but you're really only getting people at a particular moment in time. And whatever influences them, it's more than your experiment, right? And the rest of their life is a lot more than your experiment. Uh, And all of their friends, as Kahan would say, are a lot more than your experiment and all the people they know. Yeah. And, you know, there's a there's a stickiness factor that we're really interested in. Right. I mean, if we want to change people's minds, we want to change them for the long term. And the stickiness of, of something is, is very much going to be tied to how they remember it. And so, in fact, there's been some research showing that if you tell people, you know, what are the top 10 myths about a particular um, subject matter and their their belief system is sort of against that 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 subject matter, they're going to remember the myths as true later on, you know, once their long term memory kicks in. So it's still a tricky subject. Yep. Well, I, you know, I think that these guys are both doing uh, really cutting edge stuff and I think we have to watch it closely. So uh, with that, I want to thank all of you for joining us for this episode of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. And you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Chris Mooney. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.